Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's still there. All right, guys. Welcome to this week's good call for our tactical sovereignty. Um, we're going to be going over some information regarding really kind of a nuclear reality. Uh, opposed to what has been spoon-fed and taught to everybody. Because, you know, the more you look into this, the more you start researching even the nuclear aspect of things. Um, a lot of the things that these people say, they're not even making sense when they say them. Uh, they, they don't speak in definites. Uh, they, they, they use a lot of doublespeak, basically. And we find that with everything nowadays. And so that's what we're going to be covering this evening with David Williams. And... Just checking my settings, make sure everything's set up. Well, How are you doing, David? Video. I see somebody's video. Why are we seeing videos? Yeah, let me check, make sure. Um, well, um, check your screen. Check your screen. Yeah, yeah, your screen. See what's on your screen. I can Did see you your screen. What do you see now? What do you see now? Uh, the slave is the best one who thinks he is free. Yeah, that's where it starts, right? And I think that's where everybody is, where everybody realizes when they start coming to Facebook pages and YouTube pages, always looking at the propaganda, the propaganda, right? And that's because they, because they. They concoct these programs and everything that they give to us. They come like Pell Rock, 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 How about now? Uh, you sounded okay right there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Somebody's got like an emergency, an emergency. Ah, uh, that was vehicle going by. Okay, going back to what I was just talking about. I was just talking about. Yeah, I can't do this headset. Sorry. This ain't gonna work. This ain't gonna work. Okay. The video. The video is recording. Also, just to let you know. Well, is, did the sound? Did the sound? Do I sound okay now? Because I can't use that headset with this six. Yeah, I can hear you all right. All right, so going back to where we started, you know, this is what I had. Uh, the, the best slave is the one that thinks he's free. And this is an operational program. 
just taking care of some technical things on that end. Um, not used to doing this over talk show. He's normally doing his presentations over Zoom and things like that. So it's just a matter of uh, learning some of these little technical issues with uh, tying in a new platform. That's all it really kind of comes down to. But like I was saying, that, that's really kind of what's going to be covered this evening is that, you know, it just not in things that people are, are learning uh, from a standpoint of spirituality or religion or law or whatever the case may be, we find this to be a common denominator with all the information that's presented to people. Um, and he has some history and knowledge of nuclear things, having been in the Navy. Um, there's also a few other people as well that you know I recommend people look into. Um, there's a gentleman by the name of Gallon. Um, Actually, Galen, uh, Galen Windsor, um, he is a nuclear physicist. He has some very, very interesting information, as does uh, Jack Shannon. Jack Shannon was a nuclear physicist as well, who kind of encountered the powers that be, not wanting certain information shared and let out to people. And when you listen to a lot of these people talk, uh, when they're presenting information to the public, you listen to the words they're saying and kind of the phraseology that's being used, and there's a lot of doublespeak involved with it. Um, I think one of the best evidences of doublespeak is you go back to uh, the time of Jimmy Carter when they went in to try and rescue the hostages out of Iran. Jimmy Carter's statement that he made on the television is that he said that it was an incomplete success. And people hear the success part, but they don't know what the incomplete part really means. So their mind kind of kicks that out, you know. And we find this over and over with things that are said to people. And that's part of the propaganda that that is pushed. I can make sure David has been able to get back on here. All right, David. I just reset the whole system because I was my auto setting so many times. I think it was just like locked into a program I wasn't going to get out of. Yeah, when when you left and came back in, you came back in as muted, so I had to go over and make sure you were back and unmute you. All right, well I'm going to try to go back to screen share. Screen share. Um, because we started here, and I'll get back. I'll go back at it one more time. I know that when we come into this, like I did in 1999, I felt like everything that I had ever been taught, I had been lied to about because of what we were going through legally. You know, he had almost $600,000 team from Cayman Islands. Uh, we were living in St. Kitts at the time. I had been doing trust out of Nevis. And Sherry's ex-husband was killed in a car wreck. They came in, they seized him, they came on. 
3,100 people. 3,100 people. We did a class action suit, and we ended up in two major legal battles at the same time, and we ended up having to sell a house and back here and back here. But this is when you started, when you started learning, learning that we were being out. And the first line was really attorneys. Our own attorneys. Our own attorneys. I was just setting in my hand. Okay. So anyway, um, part, part of this dumbest speak or whatever has to do with that. They understand that the best slave is the one that thinks they're free. And you can see these control mechanisms. Uh, L. Ron Hubbard came out when he did Scientology. So the only way to control people is to lie to them. And so we started looking at everything back in 2000, 2001, is that not assuming that we were right, that we could get where we were wrong, that we could work reverse engineer places and air things. And um, I won't go into playing this. This is um, a video that I'm going to show tonight. I'm playing. But the thing it does show here is a gentleman named Charles Thompson. At the very first time, it's called The Hidden Faith of the Founding Fathers. And he was asked to publish his journals because he was the he was the scribe in the Congress of Congress from 1774 all the way to 1780. And and when they asked him to publish his journals, he said, "No, I should not. I should not." Let me see if I can find that real quick. It's interesting. In the video itself, he's going to show it here in just a second. He ended up burning his records because he said, he said, he said, if I was to show all the history of this, I would unravel everything and the great men and everything that did in the revolution. Revolution. In other words, the other words, and he finally, being a master mason, he was the one that got the steel on the dollar bill, and once they got the great steel done, the U.S. whatever, whatever. He, he, he said, I shall not undeceive the future generation. So it's been a propaganda campaign ever since 1774. Um, um, so based on that, rather than going down, going down, this the legal rabbit hole too much tonight. I decided that what we did, that you and I did last week we talked and said, well, let's talk about something different and do it from a standpoint of standpoint your propaganda and what goes on in the world. And one of the things that has happened this week, and I don't know if anyone has seen it, is is um, the finding of the black hole. They say they now have an image of a black hole. This is it right here. Now, it's, they say it's from a bunch of different telescopes that did a composite with it, and it took five years or so to put this together, just compile it, make this image. And I've written into a bunch of forms, and I just told them, I said, I could pay a kid to do this here to do this um, in uh, Photoshop in 10 minutes. 10 minutes. And the reason I said that is because if you go back 100 years when they first theorized black holes, all they've ever had are unscrewed dishes that look like this. So the question is why after 100 years do they finally have something that looks like that? And the reason I asked the question is, here's a gentleman that put out 
put a video on the on the black hole and all this excitement about my first image of a black hole. He's already gotten five million views on this. And it's out here in the media everywhere. We finally know what a black hole looks like. And here's another one uh, from RT America, first ever black hole. If you go listen to this stuff, they're going to tell you all about this finding. The relevant thing here is actually he's trying to depict what a black hole would look like. And so what he does is he shows you a shitty image that he thinks this is what the picture's going to look like when you come out with it. Well, sure enough, that's kind of what it looked like. But then he proceeds, you can see in his hand he's got a black ball. So he takes the black ball, which is a sphere, not a flat surface, and he mounts it up here. And so this is the black hole. But he's using a 2D image here to show the event horizon. And the problem with the event horizon is if that hole is spherical, then the event horizon around that sphere is also going to be spherical. The event horizon is the place where light is no longer escape. So either it's going to be bouncing off of it or it's going to be falling into it. But either way, on the sphere, that light's going to enter it's every angle possible. possible. Which means you can't see past the event horizon because it's in the sphere. And it's far enough away that you won't know whether the light's entering it or, or going into it or coming out of it. Because all you're going to see is a ball of light, just like the sun. You're not going to see this. That's 2D. This is 3D. The only way to picture this is to imagine a golf ball or a baseball or something, and that the outside covering is the event horizon, and the inside is that black core. And light is hitting it at every angle possible. And the only thing you're going to see is the event horizon lit up. And in putting this information out, I was like, I put it out on some websites, and I'm like, let's just go look and see what other people have to say about it. Have to say about it. And this is Science Line. Um, this is UC Berkeley. Um, I think no, it's UC Santa Barbara. And it says right in here. The event horizon is. Um, once anything, even man or white, passes by the event horizon, it can never escape the black hole. The black hole is going to continue following, following, because of this, it's impossible to get information out of the black hole. So we can't really know what's beyond the event horizon. Let's see exactly what happens in the black hole here. We do a control F and we go flying. Where the velocity surpasses the speed of light. And inside that border, the horizon beyond which no one, uh, which one cannot see. And this one's on. And light emitted from the inside of the event horizon can never reach the outside observer, and the outside observer cannot see beyond the event horizon. Which has to do with 
Camp Rising has ever been found. In the so if you look at this, Brian, look at Brian, look. How much excitement has been generated about this photograph? I mean, it's beyond question that that photograph is flawed. Well, it hasn't been brought out really that all of the photos and everything that is shown by NASA are all really just artist renditions. That's not really they all are. That's, you know, it's interesting if you know any amateur um, astronomers who have telescopes and stuff. I mean, they, they catch images of the space station. Space station. The space station is real. Space station is real. You can see it from you can see it from the ground. See it from the ground. I used to have a gentleman live near us in Tampa. He used to take his telescope out. We lived in a, a base of Harriet's Golf Force. And we were across the street from the car three and he would like take his telescope out there and go out there three night. I walk across the street and go into the main building for the thing. So anyway, but my point here really is that being able to break apart the propaganda is just doing a little research and looking at things, looking at the way they're supposed to be, trying to figure out why the gentleman here, gentleman here can't figure out that they're going to be a rising community right here and it's not going to look like that. This is just a dark ring of it. This is just a dark center with a ring around it. They're saying, Brian's saying no one can hear. No one can hear. I'm hearing you. Um, Brian said he was outside trying to pull up, trying to get him picked on, getting picked on. An echo is pretty harsh. Pretty harsh. Why is it doing this? Oh, it's just because you're in a room. It sounds like you're in a room. Well, it's not because of that. Because of that. Well, it's not really an echo, but it's that type of sound. It's done it on every. I'm 
Okay, um, hey, Brian, hey, Brian, are you there? Are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Are you hearing an echo? It just sounds like the sound like when somebody's in a room talking. That's all. Um, it's not like an, it's a, It shouldn't be doing it on mine. I have the best. To me, it seems like it's 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 the talk to format itself. Is that you with the settings? Well, if you are going to play the audio from any of those videos, you could probably just put the headset back on. No, I'm not going to try to do that. It's just way too much echo. Did you just try to change the settings? I haven't changed anything. See, I don't have any controls in my All right, I'm going, I'm going, I'm going to get out of this, and I'll be right back. I'll be right back. All right. Okay, I'm just going to take a break here while he's making some technical changes there. Yeah, there's no audio for me right now, David, if you're speaking. Unmuted.
Okay. All right, you're back. All right, do I sound any better? Oh, you sound perfect right now. Yeah, I'm not hearing any echo. I just went and re reset everything and rebooted the computer. Oh, now I'm hearing echo again. It tells me it's streaming to YouTube Live as well. That I'm not aware of. That's not on my end. Oh, it might automatically do it to my YouTube channel, but I've not had that happen in the past. But I haven't done the video in the past. Oh, you're recording video as well right now? Well, yeah, because you're uh, screen sharing. Instead of audio, we had the uh, video going as well. Um, well, I don't have it on screen. Hang on. I'll go back and do screen share if it makes a difference. Yeah, I'm not hearing any echo on this, and it sounds excellent. Well, I still hear it a little bit on mine. Um, yeah, Brian just suggested that what we really ought to do with this is redo it and let let me do it through Zoom. And um, Well, that's just, you know, that's that's not really, that's not that hard that's for us, because that's the, where I do that's recording, where I anyway. recording anyway. All right. Now the question is, are other people hearing an echo? And who's still here? Uh, people can comment if you're hearing an echo in the comments. Okay, and Kelly's there. And um, light echo. You're saying, yeah, You're Zoom. Saying, I don't know who that is. But... <laughs> oh, that's you. That's you. Okay. Yeah, he's saying there's a problem. He just got kicked off again. Who was that? Brian Smith. Oh, it might be on his end. I don't know. I was kicked off once, but that was earlier. Well, let's see. These videos pulled up. Let me see how many of this stuff. I don't have certain things up that I had it before. Let me try pulling up. Um, Okay, I want to try to go through this a little bit. Just, you know, I, there's not much I can do with this. As far as, um, this presentation's already done. But it's not going to pick up stereo mix in broadcast mode like I had thought it was going to. And this we did two weeks ago, and I'm going to be adding to this presentation. So let's see. 
What I'm showing here I'm showing is SL1. Man, I just got echo again. Uh, let me see what happens with this. Can you still hear me okay? Oh, yeah, you sound perfect. Okay, that sounds better to me. I'm cutting my I'm cutting my mic volume down on this time. Okay, the SL1 disaster is something that when you go into military in a Navy Secret Power Program, it's one of the first things you learn. You learn. This occurred in '61. Sorry about that. All right, I'm gonna let the video play and I'll go scrolling through this. What I'm showing here is they actually have online a documentary of this disaster. It's an hour, there was two different ones. There's one's just shorter, one's an hour and a half, one's 40 minutes. And in 1961, what they had happen out in Idaho, this is back in, they would literally go inside the plant to pull the control rods up. I mean, inside the core itself. I don't mean in the reactor chamber, I just mean the core room where the chamber set. What happened with it was they had to manually pull the control rods out. They had a two-day cleaning. They had done a shutdown. And they were bringing the reaction back up. And and to bring the reaction up, they had to pull the control rods up 10 inches because where the fuel rods come down, the control rods are made of half them. They could suck up all the neutrons before the uranium will because uranium, had, you have to slow the speed of the neutrons down and water is your moderator. It slows the neutrons down. So when you pull these control pull rods these up, control it's exposing the uranium and it starts sucking in the neutrons and fissioning. And you have to get to what's called a Wonderworm reaction, which is a called critical. And the calculation on it was that each rod had to come up 10 inches. One of the techs ended up yanking on one of the rods because it was kind of stuck and it pulled it up to 27 inches. And as soon as it did, it went super critical. And it and formed a steam bubble in the core, the and it core, blew out that rod and, and pinned him to the ceiling. And so this is what the SL1 disaster is all about when we're learning this kind of stuff. Now, obviously, this now, is 1961. They don't have that kind of problem anymore, where they create steam bubbles. Some of them actually run on steam, but the reactor core itself has to stay in the water. Now, I talked a bit about the disaster here two, uh, two weeks ago. And, I'm, of course, I'm showing the same things I've already mentioned. Hafnium, what is it used for? You can see here it's used in nuclear reactor control rods for its ability to absorb neutrons. The, the long and short of it is, is that if you look at the Fukushima event, let's just go talk about Fukushima since I have this up. Uh, this is the Fukushima reactor problem. Um, understanding Fukushima Daiichi. Let me see if I can find the one that's the actual documentary. Uh, this, this is showing a reactor that's hit MIT. I pulled it up, pulled that up for a reason. Uh, this is showing a core startup. 
what happened at Fukushima, and if you read, if you watch the documentary or read anything in relationship to it, here's the Congressional Research Service, the nuclear disaster. See what this one is a PDF, Fukushima, the accident report. This was 503 pages. There's a lot of work that has been done on this. And just like with the black hole thing, it's um, it's just more propaganda. And they spend a lot of time, a lot of work on effort on this. And the reason it's propaganda is, if, let me see if I can find the video. Self. The documentary, if you look into the documentary, it tells you, and it'll tell you in the timeline that Every new, as soon as that thing hit five on the Richter scale, as far as the earthquake, air, all those reactors shut down. They went to the automatic scram mode. Scram means that if this is a nuclear core here, these are the control rods coming out of it. And they're showing this diagram. And this one is actually a bigger one. And it has control rods and this that come in for, uh, vertically and horizontally. But all these vertical rods here, once it goes into scram mode, uh, when they're pulled up by mechanical screws and motors, they pull them out slowly when you go to a reaction. But if it goes into scram mode, it has mechanical interlocks on them that release those rods and they drop immediately to the bottom and shut it down. Uh, one of the videos over here that I had was 27 seconds. Where did that one go? This one is on scramming it. Okay, this one's on scramming it as well. That's, that's a minute and 10 seconds. This one here, I had it up. And it'll tell you that... Uh, times the control rods are made from neutron absorbing material they're lowered or withdrawn from the core um, to control the nuclear reaction so when you draw them up the reaction starts when you put them in it shuts it down in the event of an emergency the control rods drop by gravity that means those mechanical interlocks release and it goes down and it says right here shuts the re it'll, it'll shut the reaction down within two seconds as soon as they hit it's it it's over with so that means there's no more fissioning going on. So there's no more heat being generated because without fission, you're not creating heat. So all you have to do is keep running the pumps. So at Fukushima Daiichi, when you look at uh, any of these reports, the tsunami took almost an hour to get there. I mean, it's not like moving at light speed through the ocean trying, you know, on its way there. So during that entire time, they're going to be running the cooling pumps. They're going to be pushing hot water through that core to cool that thing down quickly and any of these videos that show you a nuclear reaction like this one is a nuclear startup they're going to tell you that these reactions uh, they pressurize the system to 2,000 pound pounds and the reaction runs at about 570 degrees there's no reaction anywhere that's hot enough to melt anything in this core and I don't have it up here but if you look at um, one of these it shows I think it's this one that the fuel rods, this shows that they actually mine the plutonium and it gets sent to a lab. And when they're mining the, the uranium itself, since it releases alpha particles, the alpha particles won't go through your skin and they won't even go through a shirt. Um, because they're big particles and the only danger is getting them into your lungs so they wear breathers.
That's it. When they're mining, that's all they wear is a breather. Then they actually send them off to a lab to enrich the fuel. Okay. And if you see this video here, these are guys that are in the lab enriching the fuel, making the fuel rods. This guy's not even wearing a mask. So how dangerous is this stuff? And the answer is it's not that dangerous. Otherwise, they wouldn't be mining so much of it. And they're mining a lot. It's all over the world. There's some of the websites that you can find showing, um, I think, the actual numbers by country, how much gets mined. Uh, in the Soviet Union and different places. Okay, I had all this stuff up on the control rods and everything. All right, so going back to Fukushima, everything everything shut down as it was supposed to shut down. But when you go to the official story, it says that they start worrying about these uh, pools where they had the control rods, the fuel rods and the, and the new rods. Well, if this video over here, where I just that I just had up, is showing that these guys, the the they're actually making brand new fuel rods. They're not sitting in water. They're not sitting in anything. So the fact that they're putting these spent um, and new fuel rods into a pool of water, it doesn't really mean that much. I need to have this video. Wish I had. Man, I got to do this presentation over. Okay, this shows SL1. When you look at the reactor core of, of Fukushima, um, okay, this is one that shows a core. It's a little bit different than Fukushima. These cores, the fuel sitting in here, it's inside a steel containment union. These are the control rods that come out through the top. This is the system that pressurizes it. And you can see here it's heated to 500 degrees Fahrenheit. But when you increase the water pressure to 2,000 pounds, the boiling point of water goes to 635 degrees because you don't want the thing flashing to steam inside of here. And this is the reason that they want it cooled down. It's like you, they say, and it's true, that once the reaction is shut down, those rods are still hot. Well, being hot is no big deal. You just keep running the water pumps because from here, this water comes out of this and goes into a... Um, oh, I have to go here. It goes into a steam generator. It's not showing it in this video. Um, anyway, the steam generator is what cools down the reactor plant. Because in, in the beginning of the reaction, what you're looking to do is heat up the water so that the water gets hot and it produces steam in the steam generator. But that water is at room temperature. With 570 degrees running through the piping, the water will flash the steam. But the water is only running through piping. The secondary water is on the outside, and it never becomes radioactive because it's it's not inside the pipe. It's water on the outside of piping that becomes extremely hot, flashes the steam. But when they when you want to cool the, the reactor down, you shut the reactor down itself, and now you no longer have hot water running through the piping, and the room water, the, the room temperature water that keeps coming into the secondary or into the steam generator is eventually just going to cool the whole system down. And that's what happened at SL1. And when, you know, when I had this thing up showing these guys were in there, they've been working on the plan for two days. I've been inside a facility. I mean, I worked at D1G in uh, Boston Spa, New York. 
and uh, we could cool a reactor down in two or three hours. It didn't take that long. So everything about Fukushima was just just completely nonsense. And I wish I could find. Let me let me see if I can find it. Forty minutes. I'll just tell you. Forty minutes into the video, which is their official video on the entire disaster, they start talking about these spent and new fuel rods and how they have to be cooled off, and they're in laying in these pools. But if you look at the pool of water, none of the water is even moving. It's just a pool, and the water is at room temperature. And they're saying if the pumps, you know, stop working, I'm like, there's not pumping water into the pool. They're pumping water into the plant. And so they're just talking about these spent fuel rods, and it says if the water level goes down, the fuel rod could catch on fire. Well, the fuel rod has got zirconium coating, and that zirconium melts at 3,370 3, degrees, so it can't catch on fire. That's just the melting point. And and they're putting this stuff in these videos, and it's like complete propaganda about what they're telling people. Now, the purpose of it, in my opinion, is that they're covering up something else. Because if you look at any of these videos here, um, the official disaster, this is Fukushima Daiichi. They're saying that some of these blew the top off, and you can go look at the videos. You can see the top of one's missing like this. This is the same kind of thing that they alleged that occurred at SL1, although it didn't blow the top off. And that disaster at SL1 was much worse than this. So they, if this actually blew off, it's because they blew it. They, they actually blew it up. But even to get rid of this, all you have to do is fly helicarriers over this with buckets of concrete, and I mean big buckets, and you just cement the whole place in, turn it into a concrete block. One of the things that they did with the facility at, at SL1, although they did move, remove the core, they removed it with a crane and they buried it in the ground, and that was it. So the question is, and this is what you and I had talked about, Brian, is like, how bad is this stuff actually when it comes to the radioactivity? Oop, sounds better. No echo. Okay. <laughs> Unmuted. Is Brian, Brian? Yeah, I turned off the audio or the vocal on my end i thought maybe that would okay. help a little bit but yeah the question is you know how bad is it and one of the things i look at also with this is who really profits from this you know what i mean and that, that's one of the things i've been trying to figure out and trying to figure out and all of a sudden it like just kind of clicked in my head it's like wait a minute what have these electric plants been running off from all this time these electrical companies their plants have been running off from either coal or fuel. Well, when you bring nuclear into the equation, now there's no longer a need for those fuels that, you know, the big, uh, Rex Bear calls them MFers, the big money funders, they own all these big oil companies and everything. Now there's no need for them anymore. So that would be really a good reason to put the propaganda out and get people afraid of, um, radioactivity and and those kind of things and you know gosh i don't think there's been a new nuclear plant uh built in the usa for a number of years when actually if you listen to um some of these previous um physicists that i mentioned earlier on the call talked about that they're saying you know what there should be one of these plants every 10 miles a little mini one taking care of everybody it's the mm -hmm. best way for electricity 
It's extremely safe. I mean, um, one of the videos over here, that MIT one, it's a reporter who's going in, and the first thing she shows him is this meter that's up on the wall. And can you see that? Am I still in screen share? Unmuted. Yeah, you're still on screen share. Yeah, I see okay. that fine. Okay. All right. This is 0.1 millirem per hour. If you spent outside, if you just went outside and stayed in the sun, you would get about one millirem per day. So inside this plant here, you could pretty much spend an eight hour, 10 hour, 12 hour shift in here, and you're not going to get any more radiation than if you would have spent half a day down on the beach. So there's really, it's really no, not much any different. And, and, and when I had pulled this one up and show it, um, she's about 24. She's approved by the NRC via this plant. Um, she's one of the operators. She's showing here the concrete shielding. And this is this not the not, not the shielding around the building, around the building, shielding around the core, around the core, because you have shielding around the core and you have shielding around the whole building. And okay, so that's the core. That's the core. And they're doing a layover here, showing the fuel rods down in the center. And then she actually takes them on a tour up here. Um, to show him the top, him the top. So they're putting on some booties, on some booties and a little coat and a little coat. Um, have you tried playing the audio off from one of those again, just for the heck of it to see what happens? It, it's playing now. Can you hear it now? Can you hear it? No. Well, I'll tell you what, let me reduce this back down. Okay, because they actually do have um, closed caption here. And she's telling him. Um, because this guy's kind of freaking out. He's like, why are we not getting irradiated? You know, she's taking him up there to show him the core itself. And here again, one of the things I tell people about this is that the only radiation you could possibly get would be gamma radiation, because that's actual radiation. Alpha particles, beta particles, beta minus, beta plus, it doesn't matter. They can't penetrate even a cotton suit like a overcoat, like a overall suit here. Overall. Overall. And then she's showing one of the cells down into the core. These guys are all rocking around it, but they're all standing around the courts. Yeah, and they're not wearing any protection or anything either. And that's one of the things Galen uh, Winston talks about is that they never wore anything. He said that they were just wearing whatever. They didn't have the overalls and, you know, a face mask and gloves on and all that. He said, you know, they were just wearing their regular work uniform, working with the uranium and all this stuff. He said until I think it was like 1952 when the nuclear waste act came along and, it, and everybody was all freaking out. And so, you know, now they wanted to create a new agency for the government 
that could monitor all this stuff, which of course can also provide funding through fines and things like that if these plans aren't up to standard. Well, the thing that people need to understand about this, water is such a, such a big time absorber of radiation. Like if you're on a submarine and you're communicating from periscope depth or whatever, that's all done by microwave. As soon as you submerge, you're not getting microwave. You're done. You're done. As soon as you go underwater. And so what she's showing here is um, we can heat experiments in really high high temperatures high temperatures but this is them standing over them the core standing over the core that's the core right there the blue part and the only thing between them he's asking them why are we not dead and so in the core tank we have 10 feet of water and the purpose of that is to shield us from the radiation while we're working in the core so uh, I'm, I'm, I mean, my, when I looked at my, Dai, when I looked at Fukushima, and one of the presentations I did on the old website, website years, ago, years ago was, was within a week I had done a presentation, done a presentation showing, showing radiation network, radiation network. Dot com. Dot com. These are monitors around monitors the U.S. Around Can you see, this site? you see this site in this map? Yep. In this map. Yep. So right now, these so are right monitors now, these in different places. Out here near Reno, you're 43. LA is about 39, San Diego 42, Jacksonville 28, uh, this 14 over Raleigh, North Carolina 37, that would be down at Charlotte, 39 would be over at Asheville. But this map goes around the world. So they have most of them off in Japan right now. But Fukushima's down here. And the only one they're showing, the they're showing well, the reading, the reading is up here, is up and here, it's at 11. And it's at 11. So the question I have is, I even have from here, if this radiation is going all everywhere like this, it's going, 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 then why are all the readings in the U.S. higher than they are in Japan? That's interesting. Yeah, there's nothing in the U.S. There's one that's live over here near Boston, Massachusetts. They must be having a well, bunch of clouds. Here's another thought I just had too, David, when you were showing Japan there, is that after the war, uh, through the uh, weapon uh, proliferation for Japan, they're not allowed to have any weapons of any kind, supposedly. You know, nothing major. And here right. there's all this worry about nuclear weapons and things like that. But though now you've got nuclear plants there at Japan, it's like, come on, guys, it just... Put your thinking cap on for a second. Well, the thing about nuclear weapons is a nuclear weapon has to have a trigger. And the uranium, the way it's aligned in a fuel rod, it doesn't create a nuclear pile. So there's two reasons why a core can't explode. Number one, it's not in a design that's going to explode at all. But it's kind of like the dynamite having to have a blasting cap to set the thing off. You have to do the same thing with a nuclear weapon. You got to have a trigger that triggers the detonation. Right, absolutely. I understand that. That there's a, uh, a second component that's used as a checking mechanism for uranium. But what I'm thinking is, okay, if you already have, if the country, say for instance, like Japan, already has all the uranium, now 
how difficult is it in whatever markets to uh, uh, go and retrieve that triggering mechanism, that other component. I can't remember the name of it right now. I think it starts with a T. I'm not sure. Um, let's see. Let's see if it gives me if it gives me Shima design of the plant. It should on images. I found it when I was doing that video. Here it is. That video. Here it is. So even with this little, if it goes to a bigger picture, a bigger picture. Okay. I'm assuming this is still in screen share. Still in screen share. Yep. Okay, this is the core itself. In here, where the control control rods and the fuel rods are. Fuel rods are. Okay, this housing is made of steel. Made of steel. All right, and the melting point here is going to be about 3,200 degrees. 3,200 degrees. The zirconium that surrounds the fuel rods is 37, uh, 3,370 degrees. Melting point. The uranium itself is 2,000 degrees. A little bit over, but over. Um, so, so this is the core itself. The core it's itself. housed in it's steel. Housed then it has steel. a secondary has a wrapping secondary around it. Wrapping around it. You can see this. You can see. And this. in that video, with in that video, girl. I think is that it? No. Yeah, no. When she's saying, she's saying um, um, showing him the shielding that's around the shielding it. Shielding that's around it. It's five and a half feet of concrete. And, feet of concrete. and it's heavy, dense concrete, heavy, dense concrete with metal punchings metal as well as sand and water sand and to make water, it absorb radiation, make it absorb radiation better. better. He asked, so he it's asked, not so it's not regular concrete, regular special concrete. concrete. It's just concrete. Yeah, special it's concrete. concrete. Special concrete. Okay. So you have a so housing around this housing thing, around but this concrete would be this. Big yellow housing here. And this cutaway. And it's one of the things and that she mentioned in the video as well as having variable levels of shielding. So the radiation has to come through this first housing, then the second housing, and this concrete housing here. It's got to go out through the building. Sounds like next to impossible, right? Yeah, I mean, that's major layers of protection, and especially heat-wise as well. Mm -hmm. And your problem here with radiation, and let me go find one website real quick. And this would be types of radiation. Um, uranium, can it hurt me? Because uranium decays by alpha particles, external exposure to radiation is not as dangerous as exposure to other radioactive elements because the skin will block the alpha particles. So in the core, the uranium is not even the problem. The problem is that with any juke or detonation or fission or whatever, it is going to release iodine and cesium. 131 and cesium-132. Those are highly radioactive, highly including radioactive. giving off gamma radiation. Gamma radiation. Um, um, but there again, you can see 10 feet of water blocks that, even when the core is running. The core is running, and the particles aren't going to get out through the water anyway. So the whole thing about this uh, Fukushima Daiichi and is this thing blowing? This thing blowing. 
the reason that it's called fallout is because it has to fall out of the air. So how's it going to get into the air? It's certainly not going to get into the air through a meltdown because it's going down. So I, I understand that it didn't melt down anyway because there's no way it reached the temperatures necessary to do it. But even if it did, these, high, these heavy particles, 131, 132, iodine and cesium, how are they going to get into the atmosphere? It's not like you had a 10, a 15 megaton detonation to do it 10 miles into the atmosphere like they did any at all, right? Well, the thing on it too is that the 131 and 132, those particles are too heavy to even really like you said, be airborne unless they were blasted up into the air. Well, that's the reason they call it fallout, just because it falls out of the air, because they're too heavy to remain suspended. And yeah. but you so can't, it, but you can't, you can't take, you can't get a wind and blow these particles up into the air, have them sail around the jet stream and the atmosphere for like nine, ten years, and all of a sudden they decide to fall out of the air. That's my point exactly. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. so everything we're being told is just like told is just like propaganda. Propaganda. Well, one of the things that I wonder about as well is because people hear about, oh, you know, don't eat fish out of the ocean because all that radiation from Fukushima is coming across and things like that. And um, looking at the, some of the presentations by uh, Galen Windsor, he he's talking about going and swimming in those warm pools. Not thinking anything of it years and years ago, and never had a problem from it. He he didn't start growing a third arm or anything. And they show this here in this diagram. This, this is this supposed diagram. to be the pool. Supposed to be the pool. They said they put it up above, up above the reactor, but it's the this reactor. is not even the reactor in the reactor chamber the reactor itself. It's just in the building. Just in the building. And and all these people are walking around walking this around pool all the time. All the time. But you can see here, even with this pool of water, they're saying if the pumps dry out, where's the pump? Where's the pump? This thing ain't even got, has it got any piping to it? I'm not seeing a pump. So I don't know what they filled that thing up with. Well, even still, you realize that people stop and just use a little bit of thought. This water is going to reach high temperatures, really, because of the heat that's being generated there. And what happens when water gets warm, you start getting evaporation. So when you've got people walking around there in that area, what are they breathing in? They're breathing in the air, some of the air that's coming from some of the evaporation from that. And evidently, there's no concern, is there? Well, I think this video actually shows it the best. And they did the same thing even today, even today of the, the events with Fukushima, the president, the president. Japan flew out there in the, afternoon. There in the afternoon. I'm like, but the core just melted down. There's all this radiation problem. Why are they allowing the president of the country to go out to Fukushima? And you see him land in a helicopter. He he's got nothing on other than a you know sports coat and a, a suit and tie, whatever. Suit and tie, whatever. That's the last thing you'd want is your number one official walking around the supposed radioactive area. Well, I apologize for, you know, I hope that somebody got something out of this. Well, like I said, I, when we come out with a website, let me go find that real quick. If I actually have it up. No, that's not your fault. Nothing to apologize for. It's just a matter of 
trying to figure out different technologies here and different techs and make them match up and work together. Uh, but it started uh, this last uh, half hour, starting at about the one hour mark of the recording. Is The audio has been excellent and everything like that. The only problem has been not being able to play the videos. Yeah, this slide, yeah, but um, when I go to come out the website, and we're going to do three Pick Keys podcasts, or you know, places where I'm going to do interviews on my own. Um, if I go to about one of the things I'm going to do this time is just like talking about science here. When I did the first website, I identified like 13 different rabbit holes in the system. When we look at the whole mental programming that they're doing to us, the medical one, medical one. Uh, even talking about radiation, I love it. It's like, they tell you don't get too many x rays. But if you get cancer, you need to get x ray. Cure the cancer. What are we looking for? Oh, I don't know. I'm on the front page. Where is, where is yeah, I should have let you go through this. Let you go through this. Where's the topics? Where's the topics? We already have something already around two hundred posts up on the website. Up on the website. But I'm going to cover pre and post constitutional history because the false history is the one that's killing everybody. I mean, I did it before where I would try to be more balanced and go into all the different rabbit holes and stuff, but science, science, the health, and different things. Of course, I had to do a lot of debunking of legal information that's out here, but the legal information that's out here itself comes from the false history. And uh, like you can go here, like you can you see can the original charters of the, the Carolinas, Carolinas. Uh, instructions to the royal governors. The royal governors. This is history that goes back into the 1600s, and it gives you a foundation for what these guys were doing. And if you see here, in 63, the Carolinas was granted to eight lords proprietors. Okay, they're the ones that actually set up the Constitution and or the the government. The they were given the land grant. They, they came over a set of colonies, and they set up the constitution and the government. Now they were doing this under the authority of England, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah, they got the land. These are no buildings. One of the things that people don't seem to get about what happened in Europe is they all intermarried so much among the bloodlines that the king, like look at Braveheart. Princess of France is over there married to his son, right? So all they've ever done is figure out how to keep power at the top, and then they've had a few little squabbles among themselves among bloodline. So all the guys that got land grants to come over here under whatever company they incorporated, the king was the one that did the incorporation, Virginia Company, Massachusetts Bay Company, Delaware Company, Pennsylvania Company. It says in the charters that he freed them from all taxation. As long as they use their money to go over there, establish the colony, take the English subjects with 
And then they were free to set up whatever form of government they wanted to, and they set up royal governors to run it. Uh, and they set up the system of courts and magistrates or whatever. All right, but if you look at something like this, something that would just people would not believe, this which is not what we're taught. Indentured servitude in America. Between one half and two thirds of European immigrants to the 13 colonies between 1630s and American Revolution came under indentures. In other words, they were slaves. They had a seven-year period of indentured servitude, and they were not required to be paid. They were not required to be paid. And when you read about any of this kind of stuff, like in Ted Nason's book called Gangs of America, all you got to do is go down here and look at. Um, see well if you go even to probably the first compact that was ever created uh here in the usa which was the mayflower compact they were still pledging their allegiance to the king yeah that's right here, yeah, right here. make our compact avalon project and it says you know we who in the name of our loyal subjects are our dread lord king james so the, this illusion that exists here is that somehow there was this big freedom movement going on. And I'm like, no, this is a business venture, and it's some of the nobles trying to get out from under King George because he made him mad. But when you look at, say, Carol Birkin's work on myths of the revolution, it was the Sons of Liberty who started doing all the fighting. And, and literally, the British couldn't figure out what their problem was. Because it's like, wait a minute, you're one of us, you're Brits, what are you people doing? But these were the guys that were running the colonies. If you want to get a real good picture of it, you can pull up something like, um, there's a great little TV series, not TV, it was a Netflix TV or Netflix series. Ah, okay, something went wrong, means I have it up somewhere, but it's called Turn, there it is. Washington spies. Washington spies. And I will run, I'll just play this a little bit. This is where Talmadge is trying to tell Washington that Lee's a traitor and is trying to, trying to get him killed. But this is at a point in time where Washington is trying to show France that they're going to be a good ally. So Talmadge has caught Lee in a letter staging something against Washington. And he said, I think it's more than sufficient to relieve Lee of his command. And of course, Washington says, uh, yes, it's damning information, but how did you get this? He said, I forged a letter from Gates to prompt his response. And he said, so Lee's letters contain the same request to burn both of the letters. And what he's basically saying here is, what is, let's turn, okay. And so what do you want me to do about this precisely? He said, this man's been working to undermine you. He said, yes, this is the day I was appointed. Okay. And Gates and Conway and others. He said, would you, would you have me court-martial them, hang them, stone them to death? What would you have me do? Would I have you defend yourself? He said, I'm not in danger. America in the future is, uh, depend on this army, and if we fight ourselves, it will appear we're divided and disorganized. He said, sir, we are greatly divided. 
and the French cannot know it. Now, Benjamin Talmadge was his head of, he was the spy ring, head of intelligence. He said, you have so little understanding of what's at stake. And this is all true right here. This is actually, you know, he said the French. He said only France has the arm. And the munitions and the ships needed to defeat Howell's army and liberate the cities. Now, the point of all of that really is that these people would have never won that war without France. France won the war for them. Even in the battle with Cornwallis surrendering, I think Washington had about 2,500 troops and French put in anywhere from 4,000 to 4,500 troops. France was taking advantage of these guys to try to get a leg up on the king, and it didn't work out for him. But as soon as France came into the war, it changed King George's entire approach to the war because they were now fighting everywhere, off the coast of Gibraltar, down in the Caribbean, everywhere, everywhere. Britain had well over a thousand ships, and these guys had none, or next to none, except for privateering. Privateering. So, well, you know, and I, I even, I even heard some of this uh, today. It was here today or last night from somebody that has their own YouTube channel, pretty real popular, forty some thousand subscribers. Where, and, and he was talking about how America freed themselves and the Declaration of Independence and stuff. And I'm thinking, gosh, you know, even the people who claim to be informed are still in such a state of um, delusion over the whole thing. They don't really know the details. They haven't even really just looked at the documents. It, it, the U.S. wasn't recognized until the Treaty of Paris or the Treaty of Peace came out. And if people just go and read the beginning of the, the Treaty of Peace, you still see that King George is placed in, uh, what is it, the position of um, fiduciary over the U.S. at that time. And whoever's in charge of your money, I'm sorry. If somebody else is in charge of your money, you're not sovereign. You're not free. And the thing about it is, is if you go look at the P, I got tons of PDFs where I've read these. This is 110 pages, uh, law of nature, constitution. Um, but you can go read anything like John Jay Treaty, Avalon. And... This is something that blows people away. I mean, I've told people this for, shown them this for years. This for years. His Majesty shall withdraw his troops and garrisons from punching the boundary line. See, the king was not leaving. The reason he wasn't leaving is they weren't paying the debt. They had signed that debt under the Articles of Confederation, and they weren't paying the debt. So when they got together, you can read the federal papers. It was all about how we're going to preserve the union. How we're going to preserve what we created. And that was the, why they had those the, uh, secure, secure the um the um the foreigners the, the foreign powers of powers of France Spain France, and Holland Spain and Holland and King George, King George because his Britannic Majesty was still King of France and this is where people don't understand sovereignty you can be sovereign in these domestic affairs it doesn't mean you are the ultimate sovereign in your international affairs. And the same thing is true with the states. Under under federalism, the states were never sovereign. There's no nation state that has ever dealt with any single state. 
They will only deal with the United States of America. And so, so this was something that greatly upset Washington upset anyway, because the king wouldn't leave. But he even said, well, we've given him reason not to leave. We have proven that we're not governing ourselves properly. And so now this is in 1796, after they made the guarantee, the Constitution was guaranteed that all debts were still going to be paid. And they had to create a more powerful government to make the states do it. And in the Dones versus Penn Hollow case, it actually says that the power Congress requested was countersigned by all the governors in every state. But if you look even here in 1794, just like Canada today, just like Australia today, this evacuation shall take place on or before the first day of June, and all proper measures and intervals should be taken in concert between the governor of the United States and his governor general of America. They still had a governor general. He's the guy that sits over the president. Just like today, the governor general sits over the prime minister in Canada, and they have the governor general sits over the prime minister in Australia. So anyway, going back to the beginning, yeah, we got lied to. All right, we're about an hour and a half. Why don't we just uh, call tonight? I'd like to do this again, though. I can do it on Zoom. All right, that's cool. Um, yeah, I'll link Zoom in and do it. Uh, I want to experiment with it this week before we try it again. Um, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a platform that, I mean, I like the Zoom platform. I really do. It's it's very robust. Very robust. And it's very, very easy, very user-friendly. Easy, user-friendly. I'm not saying that TalkShoe's not, but TalkShoe's really more geared toward, um, I guess, like internet radio. Right, it's kind of a transition from internet radio into trying to do conferencing and uh, it's got new owners now, and that's why they've opened the platform for doing video. But obviously, there's still some more bugs that need to be worked out. Well, I don't think there's any bugs really, but probably. I mean, I don't know what the audio thing was. It might have just been because you were trying to record video. I'm a big proponent of screen share when I was doing all this back in 2010, 2011, and 12. I had a guy actually sit down with me. He wanted to interview me in Atlanta. And uh, he was like, well, I couldn't find a picture of you online. It's like it took me forever just to find a picture. Because if you ever look at any of my presentations, you know, I actually use my mouse like a bouncing little ball. I'm reading word for word to people right out of the wall. And I asked him, I said, well, what did you need to see a picture of me for? You, what, you thought you were going to look at my face and tell if I was honest or not? <laughs> like you voted for Obama, didn't you? Yeah. And um, so I'm still a big proponent of, of um, you know, people, you know, people see it in black ink on white paper. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, there's so many people that talk about stuff. It's like. Okay, can you document it for me? Can you show me where that's really at? Because as far as you know, you're just pulling this out of the air. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, I don't know if you've read this before. Have you read it? Uh, where, where, where did that go? Uh, Ted Nason's book, Gangs of America. Have you seen that? Have you seen that? What was that again? This book. That's on Avalon Project? No, this, um, where did it go? Uh, Ted Nace's book Ted called, um, called um, Gangs of America. Gangs of America. Oh, Gangs of America, yeah. Yeah, I think I've read parts of it. I definitely know that name. Yeah, this third chapter here, this is this is why when people say we'll talk about what happened in America, I'm like, look, the, it was given to the nobility and they never gave it up. I don't care what anybody says, they don't give, it, they don't give this kind of stuff up. They were willing to treat people like this. And if you read this thing, it's just the third chapter called um, The Ultimate Reality Show, A Brutal History of Virginia Company, A Prison Without Walls. Uh, or as Morpheus told Neo, The Prison for Your Mind. Except this wasn't a prison for your mind. This was an actual prison. Actual prison. So if you take, um, go back in time and you, let's see, take a few dozen British gentlemen, like to search for gold and challenge each other to do nothing else useful. You bring along a footman or powder and twig, shine his gloves for his afternoon, for his afternoon tea and all that stuff. And all that stuff. Uh, you bring along a few specialized workers, or then you fill up the boat with a half-starched children and widows of executed thieves and various petty criminals. You transport the group across the Atlantic, across the Atlantic, from land to the control of indigenous people. Indigenous people. Take back a few years' time and count how many people are still alive. Because in that 19-year period that they ran the Jamestown Colony. Out of, I think they said 6,000 people that were transported under as indentured servants, 4,800 of them died. Um, but then again, it wasn't just that. Because if you go down here, it talks about how. Uh, see, to lose one's land by. This is British common law right here, by the way. Lose one's land was by definition my death become a criminal criminal under under Henry the Eighth Vagabonds were their ears were off or were hanged during the reign of Edward VI they were banned on a chest of leather food in the Beggar Act of 1598 required first time offenders to be whipped until bloody second time offenders were banished to work the galleys of the oars of the galley or serve time in the poorhouse the organizers of the company presented their idea of their population of England into a new as a neat solution to two problems getting a foothold in a new world while at the same time ridding England of its own people um Let's see. 1609, the company applied to the city of London to ease the city and suburbs to the sort of unnecessary inmates. At the request of the company, Parliament passed a bill to allow the Virginia Company to capture English and Scottish children at eight years of age. John Dunn, one of the leaders of the promised in 1622, the Virginia Company shall sweep the uh, John Vanderzee describes children driven in flocks through the town and combined in barn. This is the way the nobility were treating British commoners. Well, and I would say that's one of the statements, really, that was made by people that came over that supposedly they were trying to escape what they called the harsh common law of the king. And, you know, people look at like Sharia law and the punishments there. Well, 
like you just showed there. Go back to what was happening in England. Look at that. Yeah. Well, they applied all this to the company. And uh, let's see. Each person, including the children, received a military grant. And those who violated the detailed rules. I neck and heels for the first of the first of the second. Forced to work convict. Such methods of discipline have been devised by Morris Lawrence for training Dutch soldiers. This is like this is training home training soldiers. You know, they had that thing called the decimation, like if they lost a battle, they'd line them all up and the, the general would go down the line of all the men. And it was called decimation because the man was pulled out. Um, deci meaning 10, you know, decimation, decimation. Exactly. Petty, petty, petty crimes punished harshly stealing an airborne and a bunch of grapes while weeding was punishable by death for stealing two or three pints of oatmeal, one more grant, one more grant, one more grant, and was chained to a tree until he died of starving. This is British common law. British common law. It's, uh, I frankly don't understand it. I don't understand it. Or why people That's, think that, uh, that, that this, did, I don't know where they, I don't know this, where story they changed. this story changed. David, that's one of the things that uh, I'd say grinds my gears or whatever. More and more is this is different people and they talk about common law and you got to bring the common law into the court. And, blah, blah. and I'm always thinking, whose common law you want them to bring in? I mean, American common law, English common law. Um, it, like I mentioned, Sharia law, that's common law over there. Whose common law right. are you bringing in? It, you know, exactly. all you're saying is common law. And as far as the judges are concerned, yeah, they're operating under common law, which is the basic practices of the courts. That's it. So they, yeah, they have no problem with it. Yeah, people used to tell me that all the time. It's like, well, they don't do anything in the United States except uh, administrative law. I went, that's because that's your common law. Your common yeah. law is administrative law here. What are you talking about? You're basically saying, please hang me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, and they, what was it? What Someone was wrote it? into your form the other day that said something about filing an affidavit down with the county recorder. What is that going to do? He said, well, that was the way it was under the King's Law in England. I'm like, you're not in England. And from what you just read, why would you even want to cement that in? Mm -hmm. You know, the reality, reality. Go ahead. David, let, yeah, let me bring this up because I keep seeing this and it drives me freaking crazy. Because you brought up affidavit. People talking about filing an affidavit of truth. And it's like, let me tell you something. As far as I'm concerned, I don't know if that is something that the CIA brought in or whoever brought in to make everybody look like a bunch of freaking idiots. But an affidavit is supposed to be truth. So when you're following an affidavit of truth, I mean, what is that? I mean, as opposed to an affidavit of lies, I mean, it, it that, that is just totally ridiculous. It's making yourself look like a moron when you title an affidavit, affidavit of truth because they're all affidavits of truth. It's an affidavit regarding a certain event, and that's the way it should be titled. But at the same, time, at the same time, it's you stating what you believe is the truth. 
and people say, well, an affidavit has to be rebutted. I'm like, like, not if you're not sovereign. If you don't have, if they don't have a reason to respond to you. And this is in the Paddleford case. It says that the states were the ones that had redress to the federal government, not the average person. We, the People Foundation, found that out. They sent 1,600 petitions to the uh, Congress, and that was sent back. And then they sued in court, in federal court. And they were told in federal court, and the case was completely thrown out. They're like, no, this is not the way you do redress. You guys got a problem, you go to the states. The states will come to us if they want to take up their matter. Correct. The state does the redress. Right. And that's exactly the way it's written in the Paddleford case. And so if you look at, you know, one of the things, uh, some documents around, um, um, big issue for me, big came, issue came for in this, it has to do with standing. It was standing. This was Philip Berg, who was the DNC over the birther issue. And it says standing can be a difficult concept for lawyers and non-lawyers alike. And it says right in here, it's desire right does not create standing. standing. Now, this this case right here is no different than an affidavit of truth. He filed a case based on his truth that he had a right to sue Obama over the birther issue. Okay, fine. But it was thrown out of court. Why? Because you don't understand issue of standing. And your desire to file this case does not mean you just created standing. Yeah, he didn't have saying to do it. Right. So you can stack up a thousand affidavits down there in that court, but the day they bring you in, and they find it goes back to that video where I was showing the leg being kicked out of the chair. The day they bring you in, and they kick any leg out from under your from under your hall, and it's always going to start right here. Start right here. Standing. Standing. The whole thing falls down. It's all over with. I don't care how much paperwork you've done. And I've done. I would never do it over again. Well, and here's something else that I see that really confuses me is, you know, people getting together and uh, the comment is always, oh, we've got to make them uphold their constitutional oaths. It's like, wait a minute. This goes back to the standing issue. What position do you have to force an officer of another company to uphold some oath you think they may have taken to that company. You don't have any. Uh, in the U.S., that's what the AG is for. The Attorney General does that, not you. You have no standing to do that. You're a nobody. You're a subject. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it always comes back to this, but it, again, it goes back to what I said in the beginning. We had to start looking for everywhere and not consider that what we were doing was correct. I was trying to find this. This is, I'll end with this. You know, we're still building, still building the stuff that we're doing. I know something came out over the weekend. And this has to do with standing. You know, we just, uh, there's a container of aid that's sitting over in Liberia right now. We went to the International Education Association, and Manuel Spodek with this. 
and it shows here the value two hundred seventy-three thousand dollars. That's the reason I'm in Jacksonville. We are shipping out of here. We're a container of relief, aid, aid materials, textbooks, school furnishings, and so forth and so forth. You know, this idea of self-determination and building something new is very, very real. For me. It got very real for me in two thousand and um but it came down to understanding the issue of standing and so doing this kind of thing here here and things that i've done over the years have always been about having that kind of recognition recognition so that no matter what i do what i do that says that says when i tell you that i'm this i have a document that says i'm this says i'm this thing speaks for itself yeah i want you to uh bring up again on that document. What is the value of that container being sent to Haiti again? Well, this one went to Liberia. This is um, Liberia. $273,000. And there's a lot of different organizations and groups and people out there trying to do different things to regain their freedom or whatever. But I think really what it comes down to is what are you doing for your neighbors? What are you doing for each other? because that's really what's important. That's what the creator really looks at. And is has your organization put together $273,000 worth of aid to another country? Or are you still arguing over names and terms on paperwork? That's all well, I see the, reason, see the reason. After, after four years of doing this, well, actually going back eight years ago, nine, nine, where did we start? Um, when I came on board, I came on board this, about 10 years, 12 years ago. 12 years ago. It was me starting, starting to train Dr. Painter, who was with the Dom since 1998. And I was like, we need to establish more recognition with this and use uh, the foundation here um, moving into these other countries because he's done humanitarian aid in 78 countries. And for me, I'm like, okay. I used to tell him, I'm like, I don't want to keep sending these people aid. They need to learn they how to, to fish. How we actually started doing the education. This International Accreditation Association, that's our NGO, of Liberia. Liberia. And Dom University is a part of that. They've been running courses there for four years. So we're seeking now the international accreditation so that those courses, which are college-level courses, they're, those students that are coming out of those classes can take those credits with them with them as they move forward internationally to other places. Their accreditation is another place that's all handled by treaty. You got to have some kind of international agreements for this. Agreements for this. So. Absolutely. And what, here's what we found through all this as well. They actually are more interested in the education than they are the eight. Than they are the eight. Isn't that amazing? Every single one of them. They're way more interested in the education. Um, as a matter of fact, well, you know, and that's the way I've been uh, the past few years, I mean, we talk about the age of discretion. You spoke of the age of discretion and what point you come about it. And, you know, to me, a lot of people think it's 18. Well, 18, I had a very good idea that there was something wrong. I was aware. I wasn't awake, but I was aware. And going on through life, I saw more and more signs of that I was aware <laughs> that things weren't quite right. 
And to all the past, I would say, eight years, when I really buckled down, threw the TVs out the window, and started spending my time just really researching and learning. And mm -hmm. then the light bulbs came on. And when the light bulbs come on, that's when you become awake. You realize who and what's really running things and what your rightful duty and position and station really should be in this world. Oh, that happened for me in 99. Yeah. Well, been St. Kitts. I mean, Alicia was with us for Lisa six months. When she went off to college, I cut everything off. I cut everything off. Except for the computers. The computers. And um, so we were there for two years. And, um, and that's all I did for that two-year period of time. Two years study law. Study law. Um, and if the screen share is still up, I'm, you know, up, I'm, matter of fact, we're looking at, we're looking at Dr. Painter and I will have a meeting Painter tomorrow to talk about this email. And this is for Uganda. For Uganda. But they now, but we've they been now, talking with we've been here, here. David Mikasa, he's one of our liaisons. He's a Ugandan citizen. Strong ties to the government there. And they now have six different tracts of land. by the government for proposals. Projects in Uganda. In Uganda. Um, and he actually said, he actually uh, last said, no freedom right. advised me, he should need official from the president of Uganda, president of Uganda, so that I can ask him to send them. Ask him to send them. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's um, it's been yeah, it's, been, it's actually yeah, really been an amazing turn. It really, it really. The thing that I think set it off for me was the uh, if you go. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen the Visigoth Radio radio presentation. Let's see. Yeah. Visigoth you know radio, radio. You know I have. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, um, in, in that interview. In that interview. Visigoth. In fact, I'll say it's a playlist on Brian, B-R-Y-N. Okay, yeah. okay, yeah. Brian Parker, Technical Sovereignty. It's one of my playlists, I'm sure. Well, it's on Vimeo now, so it may not be up because it was on YouTube and it's been moved yeah, to Vimeo. To Vimeo. Um, but this is when I went to the Bolivian Embassy. I talk about it in this presentation. And this was in uh, July 6th and 7th of 2010. Just the entire mechanism that happened through that determination, determination that Mario Bush was not going to go through. It, it really changed. It, really changed. It, it was like my like next my level change in this whole process. This whole process. The, I mean, I was in, I was <laughs> I was sitting in a meeting with the Mexican the United States, and I was like, and I was amazing. It was amazing. But it all was because Dario was a Bolivian national, and I knew I could help him if I could sit down with the legal attaché at the And that ended up happening. Have you heard anything from Dario Bush since then? I actually I have. He says he's coming to um, Fort Lauderdale soon. He sent me a Facebook message. Dario had a Dario had, had an ABM in his head, some kind of cardiovascular problem, and it has ruptured since he's been in Bolivia. He's paralyzed on the left side of his body. Left side of his body. Well, maybe I'll go over and meet you guys over there. Uh, Dario and I have had uh, kind of a hate hate relationship on Facebook and have blocked each other, but. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, <clears throat> well, that's one of those things, you know, I got frustrated with him because he had to take a lot of credit for what happened with the whole thing um, when he got arrested. He got arrested. But Paul will tell anybody. He t- I mean, he told me one time. He said, "Man, nobody was getting anything done with anything." You got Paul. You got Paul. And it was, and I didn't really get anything. I didn't really do anything other than show them that show who's legal asset. You have the right to be the right to be represent him. You are he are you are he are you. Foreigners on other soils cannot use attorneys from their country. They have to use they have to in that country. So you, you just basically showed Dario the uh, channels he had to go through. I showed Manacho what he could do, but the U.S. was the one that did. The U.S. was the one that did the right. They remanded it out of the state, federal court, federal court, and then they appointed a special attorney to come in and do a diversion agreement. And so Dario got 18 months suspended probation, and that was it. And that was it. Yeah, he was. He was originally looking for 30 All right, well, brother. Right, let's see if we can schedule something where we can do the Zoom. If you really want to, you know, do this thing. I, I'm. I, I, for some reason, I, from an education standpoint, Brian, I think, I think there has to be an alternative education system built for everything. Everything. I mean, I talked to a friend of mine today, and he's like, he's like, I'm worried about my son now. He's getting ready to go to kindergarten. I agree. I agree, David. And actually, while this a little bit ago while you were talking, I was kind of thinking, you know, if we could or somebody could put together a 